you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 6. Luke in chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 43 through 49 this morning. Luke in chapter 6, verse 43 through 49. For about the last month, we've been looking at what's called the Sermon on the Plain from Luke in chapter 6. And we're going to conclude that uh, Sermon on the Plain, this portion of Luke together this morning in 43 49. It'll be behind me on the screen as well. My translation for you to follow along there. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. Luke 6, starting in verse 43, God's word says, For no, tr- no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Once upon a time, there was a town where all the residents were ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks waddled out of their houses and waddled down Main Street to their church. They waddled into the sanctuary and where they would squat in their proper pews. The, the duck choir waddles in and takes its place, and then they sang some duck hymns. And after this, the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. And he reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings. And you can fly like birds. And all the ducks shout, Amen. And then they all waddled home. Hearing that ridiculous tale might bring to mind some questions. Questions like, what was the point of going to duck church and hearing about how they can fly if they just waddled home? Or why did they amen if they were just going to ignore what the duck Bible says? Or what is the point of having wings at all if they weren't going to use them? In other words, why hear something and then do nothing with what you've heard? What's the point of that? Or consider something else duck-related. Consider a common idiom that we all use all the time in English. This is known as the duck test, and it goes something like this. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck quacks like a duck, and swims like a duck, it must be a duck. Everyone knows what that means, right? Basically, if something looks like a certain thing, the reasonable conclusion is that it is what it appears to be, right? Or you can observe something in its habitual characteristics and draw a fairly accurate conclusion about its identity. In our text this morning, Jesus is giving us similar lessons, which are, if you are going to hear his words, you must do something with them. And that what a person does 
flows out of who they truly are in their heart. Thus, one can tell if one belongs to Jesus by their actions. What we have before us is Jesus, as I mentioned, concluding his Sermon on the Plain, with a few parting lessons built off of everything that came before it. Okay? And these lessons have similar meanings communicated through two pictures. One is of a tree, and the other one is of a house. So instead of points today, let's just walk through this text and see what God has for us. All right? So first, note that verse 43 begins with the word what? For, which signals for us that what Jesus is about to say is built on what? What he said already, right? All of the Sermon of the, on the Plain flows into these lessons. All this time, Jesus has been telling us what a kingdom person is like, right? What kind of characteristics a disciple of his possesses, which flows out of a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit through submission to Jesus. And so this picture of a good tree and a bad tree and good fruit and bad fruit is Jesus calling for everyone who hears his words to do some self-evaluation. I mean, you look up, if you look into your text, at what came directly before this. And you see this is clear, right? The kingdom person is to ask themselves, how do I judge? Remember from last week? How do I forgive? How do I want to be treated? Am I mimicking my Lord? Do I have huge sins I'm ignoring while harshly critiquing others. So when we see this illustration of trees, Jesus is not fundamentally calling us here to be experts on other people's fruit. While there's a place for discerning judgment, of course, within the church and with ensuring one does not get taken into false, by false teachers, the fundamental question Jesus wants every disciple to ask and answer is this. What kind of fruit am I? bearing? What kind of fruit am I bearing? Jesus is after an honest self-reflection and self-evaluation, which he knows isn't easy, but it's necessary, right? Again, like we talked about last week, it would be easier, yes, to focus solely on others and their fruit. It would be easier to be an expert in other people's deeds rather than our own, but that's not what Jesus is calling for here. He's asking for you to ask yourself, what fruit am I bearing? Is it good or is it bad? Is there a third way? No. Is it good or is it bad? Because we have to come to reasonable conclusions with the fruit that you find coming from yourself. You will produce what you are and not something different. It is, an, yes, an undeniable fact of nature that trees produce fruit consistent with what they are. Yes? An undeniable fact of nature. How can you know if a tree is an orange tree? Tell me. Does it have oranges on it? Right? How can you know a tree is an apple tree? There's apples on it. You know a fig tree how? Because there's figs on it. It's not rocket surgery, right? Trees bear fruit consistent with what they are. If you're new here and you've never heard me say, I'm being cheeky, okay? Don't come up to me after service and be like, you know, it's either rocket science or brain surgery, okay? Rocket surgery, all right? It's not rocket surgery. Trees bear fruit consistent with what they are. But here's the key, says Jesus in verse 45. Out of the heart, from the root, fruit will be produced. In other words, good fruit should come naturally over time based on what the root is, right? Right? 
Isn't that how trees work? Like a tree doesn't have to sit and think, okay, I'm an apple tree. I need to produce apples. So here I go. Right? And like grunt and then exert all this effort to produce an apple. It just kind of happens. <laughs> Naturally, it just comes from the fruit is produced as a result of what type of tree it is. So what's the point? If one does self-evaluation at one's life and sees not just occasional bad fruit, but bad fruit consistently being produced, they have to come to a difficult conclusion. The root's bad. The heart's bad. The person doesn't need improvement. They need uprooting and replacing with the true gospel. So just take what Jesus has said so far in the Sermon on the Plain. If you are someone who thinks they are full and lacking nothing, someone who hates people, someone who curses people, someone who is stingy, someone who wishes harm on others or strikes back, someone who does things only so that they can get good in return, someone who loves and does good to only those who love and who they love and love them back. If they lack mercy, judge the other harshly while judging self graciously, withholds forgiveness and holds grudges, speaks consistently about others with gossip and slander, then what can be concluded? That's a lot of bad fruit, isn't it? Let's press into the illustration some, okay? Say I plant two fruit trees in my backyard. And they grow and it's time to produce fruit. One tree produces several dozen good apples and, you know, the occasional bad one that just needs to be plucked and tossed away. But for the most part, it produces good apples. The other tree produces apples, but it's the opposite. Almost all of the apples are inedible. With an occasional good apple, few and far between. What can I reasonably conclude about my trees? The latter is a what? It's a bad tree that produces bad fruit. So I have a decision to make, yes? I have to cut it down and replace it. If you look at your life, if we look at our lives and see not the occasional bad fruit, we all have that, you know, right? We all have that. But if we see a consistent life of producing bad fruit, if the bad fruit outweighs the good fruit, what I need is conversion. I need to be born again. I need a new root. I need a new heart because the root is bad. I'm simply producing what's in my heart. Is that not what Jesus says? I'm producing what's in my heart. The bad fruit is an overflow of what's inside me. Charles Spurgeon says this, a tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life of that tree is the root, whether it has apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it is dead, and you are correct. It is dead. He says, it's not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. So too is with the professor. If he has life, that life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has root, but there is no works, then depend upon it. This inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one. As Spurgeon said there, there isn't some, this isn't some kind of works, righteousness, or earning salvation by deeds that is being spoken of by Jesus. It isn't that if I produce good fruit, then I'll be saved. And if I produce bad fruit, then I'm damned. 
No, it's, it's if I know Christ and I'm transformed from the inside out, that good fruit will more and more over time flow out of who I truly am, which is a kingdom person who has encountered the grace and love and beauty of Jesus and thus lives like it. Thus, the fruit is a testimony of who I am. If consistently bad fruit over time, then you could depend upon it. I am not a Christian. I need a new root. I need to be born again. Says James Edwards in his commentary, the tree determines its fruit. Fruit is not a work, i.e. something external from and perhaps disassociated from its source, but a product that corresponds to the nature of the tree. This is why Jesus talks about the heart in connection, yes, doesn't he, with discussion of fruit. Heart, you know, heart in our day just means feelings <laughs> and all that. Every infernal Disney movie tells us to just follow your heart, right? Which is basically do whatever you feel like. <laughs> Isn't that what it is? It's a horrible advice. Our hearts are idiots. Like, you guys know that? The Bible's pretty clear on that. But Jesus... Like we said a few weeks ago, he wants to change our dumb, dumb hearts to be new and transformed and altered to come into alignment with him. And the heart, biblically speaking, is the source and center and seat of the acting agent. So if it's bad, if, if it's left in its fallen and unaltered state, then that will be shown by what one does. Even suppose that good deeds will be colored by sin and poor motivation. But those who come to Jesus and give him their allegiance, he will come and make a home in their heart. And he will begin to do construction. And he doesn't just decorate, okay? He's knocking down walls. He's making a new house completely. And that changed heart will push out good fruit and more and more as it beholds Jesus with illumined eyes. Do you guys see? The point is, from the storehouse of one's inner person comes either good or evil. That's what Jesus says. One should be able to tell one's spiritual condition by one's own fruit. And understand, you can't fake this. Not for long, because it comes out of the storehouse of your heart. That's why Jesus is calling for true self-evaluation here. If you look at the fruit you produce, you must follow it to the root. You must go to the motivation of the heart that you bear. Ask yourself, why do I do the things I do? Why do I say what I say? If you don't love your enemies, why don't you? If you're withholding forgiveness, why? If you practice judgmentalism, why? Could it be that I'm seeking justification from somewhere that isn't Jesus? You really can't fake enemy love, can you? Or forgiveness, or selflessness to the undeserving and to the ungrateful. How do you fake enemy love? How do you fake forgiveness? You might do it on the outside, but you know in your heart if you're doing real evaluation, right? The cure isn't to just will yourself, understand. The cure isn't to just will yourself to do good works because you lack good fruit. That, that's not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is the root. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you lack if you lack fruit that I call for, just try harder. See, say that? Jesus doesn't want phony good fruit. He wants your heart to be changed in response to his grace. 
to where you produce good fruit because of your beholding Jesus, seeing who he is and understanding in your depths what he's done for you. So let's say I have a fruit tree that produces either no fruit or only inedible fruit, okay? Let's say I want the appearance of fruit. I want my neighbors to drive by and be impressed by my fruit tree, okay? But it's not producing fruit. What do I do? Well, I could go to Walmart and I could buy a bag of apples and I'd grab my handy-dandy roll of duct tape, which I wrap presents with, and I could go to the tree and I could duct tape some apples on it. That'll do the trick, right? Like I got fool people from a distance. They'll think I have a robust fruit tree. But if they walk up to the tree, the closer they get, the clearer it will become that this tree didn't produce these apples. They'll be able to see the duct tape and the sticker that I failed to remove on every apple. My solution in this case is a bad one. It's not long lasting because what happens to the apples? They're just going to die and I'm going to have to do what? Go back to Walmart, right? Get some more duct tape. What do I need to do instead? I need to get to the root. I need to do root work. I need to plant a new tree. My tree is no good. It needs to be uprooted and replaced. So while the Christian life is one of intentionality, the solution as stated is not to just try harder. The solution for the Christian is to look to Jesus. Beholding him, considering him, dwelling on his person is root work. Because as we've said all along in this chapter, the reason we don't love enemies it's because we have forgot that we were God's enemies, and yet he loved us. The reason we don't bless those who curse us is because we forgot how God blessed us when we were cursing him. The reason we don't give abundantly to those who can't repay us is because we forgot that the Trinity has given to us out of the abundance of God, knowing we can't pay him back. The reason we don't love those who don't love us back is because we forgot how God loved us when we were yet sinners. The reason we don't give to beggars is because we forgot that God gave to us beggars. The reason we judge is because we forgot J Jesus took on the judgment we deserve. The reason we don't forgive is because we forget the astronomical debt God has forgiven us in Christ. The reason we inspect a little sawdust while ignoring the redwood in our own face is because we forget about the lavish mercy God has given us. Do you see? Root work is looking at Jesus. Because once you truly see his beauty and you see his grace and you see that you deserve to be crushed by him, but have been instead adopted into his family, and you let that sink deep down into your heart and bones and you do it again and again and again and again and again, out of your life will come good fruit. So then just, I'm going to try real hard to bear fruit. There is intentionality, but good fruit comes from a root that has been altered by repeated encounters with this glorious Christ. Then when someone hates you, you'll begin to think, Jesus saved me when I was his enemies. How would he have me respond? When someone hurts you, you'll think, I rebelled against Jesus, yet he forgave me, I'll forgive too. When you see someone in need and you know they could never pay you back, you'll think, Jesus saw me in need and came to my rescue. See, we want this like step-by-step step -step instructions for everything in our lives, right? We're DIY and everything. Jesus says, bear fruit. We ask, how do I do that? The answer isn't like Nike, just do it. Just bear fruit. 
The answer is look to Jesus and see who you were before you met him and see what you deserve and see who he is and see if you can't love your enemy. See if you can't forgive. See if you can't give out of your abundance. See if you can't be gracious. See if you can't be selfless. It isn't try harder. It's look at Jesus more. Then see if you aren't changed from the inside out. Now, another way Jesus says to check your root by your fruit is how you speak. You see that? By what you say. By how you use your words. How do you talk about people? What do you say to and about others? So, once again, your attachment to God is shown primarily with how you relate to others, isn't it? For Jesus, the tongue is a litmus test of the soul. Do you see that? Do you see what it says at the end of verse 45? For out of the abundance of the heart, what? What you say is evidence of where your heart is. You know, James, in his epistle, which is a lot like, it's basically an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. He says in chapters 3, 1 through 12, that the tongue controls the whole body. Like the bridle in a horse's mouth or a rudder of a great ship. He says that wherever your words go, your body follows. He says that what we say is so powerful that it's like a little spark that could set ablaze a whole forest. He says that it's a restless evil. It's full of poison. He says that some will go to church, they'll bless the Lord, they'll sing His praises, and then they'll go and curse people made in His image. But only one of those is the real person. Because fresh and salt water, he says, cannot come from the same spring. Sinclair Ferguson said on James 3, spiritual maturity is evidenced by, use, evidenced by the use of the tongue. The mastery of it is one of the clearest marks of a whole person, a true Christian. Tongue mastery is the fruit of self-mastery, he says. Tom Schreiner says, how we live shows whether we are a good tree. If we're good trees, we talk differently. Our speech is gracious, loving, and kind. If these things are not true of us, perhaps we're not good trees at all. Says Jesus, by what we say, we're showing people what treasure we have in our hearts. A good root of attachment to Jesus will inevitably be shown by how we talk and the things we say about and to people. Is it the good fruit of speaking well and graciously about people that comes from the good root of salvation in Jesus? Or is it the bad fruit of gossip and slander that comes from the bad root of not submitting to Christ? These are the questions Jesus wants us to ask. Then Jesus has a question in verse 46, doesn't he? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus is calling for more introspection here, isn't he? He's asking the person who says they are a disciple, is that you? Are you one who says you're a disciple? Do you actually do what I say? That's what he's asking. Because if not, is he really your Lord? And there's a connection here to verse 45, isn't there? One should not mutter lightly their commitment to Jesus. In other words, don't say that Jesus is your Lord if you care not for his commands. If obedience is not what you're striving for out of love for his person... Did you notice that there are four faith responses in verses 46 through 49? Did you see them? There is calling Jesus Lord, coming to him, hearing him, and doing his will. We need all of that to be a whole Christian. But ironically, you know, the first one is the least trustworthy because it's easy to say things, even true things like Jesus is Lord, and not mean them or do them. Isn't it easy to just say things? 
Jesus says, it's one thing to hear my word. Will you do them? That's how you functionally submit to him as Lord. Schreiner says once more, if we say that we love Jesus but disobey him, we show that we do not really love him. Our practice contradicts our claim. You know, which would sound unduly harsh if not for the fact that that's what Jesus says. Here and in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, I bet you can finish it. You will keep my commandments. Because love isn't in words alone, it's through how we live. Do you remember at the beginning when we talked about Sermon on the Plain, when we started this, this part of uh, Luke, our friends Christian and Faithful from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. At one point, Faithful is walking, and this fella joins him, and his name is Talkative. And it's a perfect name for him because he just will not shut up, okay? Faithful can barely get in a word edgewise. And Talkative, he says all the right things. But Christian describes him like this. He talks about prayer, of repentance, and of the new birth, but he only knows how to talk about them. His house is as empty of religion as the white of an egg is devoid of flavor. Jesus knows it's easy to talk. It's easy to say, Jesus is Lord. But more difficult to actually live as one submitting to his kingship. It's one thing to say one is a Christian. It's another altogether to bear the fruit of following Christ. You know, in our culture, especially in the South, a vast majority of people you know, right? And you see, on a daily basis, say they're Christians. Or would claim the title if you asked them, yet how many live as if Jesus has nothing to do with their lives? How many keep Jesus on the peripheries, ignore his commands, and live as their own Lord and Master? How many, if asked, would locate something like growing up in church or believing in God in the abstract or voting a certain way or a vague and fluid morality as the reason they consider themselves Christians and not submission to Jesus as king? You know, in an interview G.A.D. Greer did several years ago about his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, he said that surveys show that more than 50% of people in the U.S. have prayed a sinner's prayer and think they're going to heaven because of it even though there's no detectable difference in their lifestyles from those outside the church. Thus, so many people are assured of a salvation they give no evidence of possessing on the basis of a prayer ritual they didn't understand. Jesus says salvation is much more than words. It's not only hearing his words. It's only confessing his words. It's obeying him through effort, animated and empowered and motivated by his grace. Does that mean then that we are saved by works? By our ability to obey? Of course not. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But as John Calvin said, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. And obedience to Christ doesn't just make logical sense. Just think about it. If you're going to call Jesus Lord, that means you are acknowledging him as king. Well, shouldn't a confession that Jesus is king be evidenced through a life and action of doing God's will? Do you know what God's will is, by the way? His will is that you obey his chosen king, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. Truly, if we say that we love Jesus and we want his offer of salvation, think about this, okay? If we say we love Jesus and we want his offer of salvation, I want you as Savior, 
but we believe his commands are optional. Do we realize what we're saying? Whether with our mouth or our lives, we're saying we want Jesus for his stuff. We want him because he's useful, not because he's beautiful. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want the good stuff that is the promise of heaven without all the buzz-killing stuff of obedience. But does that really make any sense? Does it make sense that Jesus desires to save you from hell, but doesn't so much mind if you act like the world and doesn't want you to live a flourishing life right now? Does it make sense that Jesus wants to save you later but not transform you now? It can't be true that we can confess that we've given allegiance to Jesus while also saying it doesn't matter what he says. And he doesn't expect us to obey or listen to him. I mean, think about it. If I, when I went into the military, you know, I had to take this oath of enlistment. But what if I took this oath of enlistment and then when I got to basic, I never did what I was told. Never showed up to work. Constantly disobeyed orders. Am I a good troop? No, of course not. So why would that kind of posture make sense in the kingdom of Christ? Charles Quarles put this well when he said, although confession of Jesus as Lord is not sufficient to guarantee kingdom entrance, it remains essential to kingdom entrance. Still, mere verbal profession is not enough. The true disciple expresses the sincerity of his confession of Jesus' identity as Lord through obedient living. Jesus was not pitting obedience against faith, but was insisting that obedience is a necessary expression of true faith. Once again, we see that Jesus is after the flourishing that he's been talking about this whole sermon. He's after the inner person whose heart has been transformed by mercy and grace that flows out of to glad obedience. And listen, think about who we're talking about here. Who are we talking about? This is Jesus Christ. He's king of the universe. You know, there isn't a square inch not a square inch in all of the created cosmos that he doesn't look at and cry out, mine. And yet he's altogether lovely and full of grace and mercy. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He's not some hard taskmaster. He's loving savior and king. He's an after obedience because obedience, he's after obedience because obedience is what's best for us. He alone knows how we can flourish in this world. He alone knows what living a truly human life looks like. His commands are for our good. And his glory, because he knows living life of sin is damning and destructive. It isn't freeing and liberating like the world says. True, full joy, real freedom is found in obeying Jesus. Freedom is not found in no restrictions like we think. It's found in the right ones. And Jesus, creator God, embodiment of perfection, knows what good restrictions we need in order to flourish. Think of a fish. Say I look at a fish swimming around in the water, and I think, man, that poor fish is being constrained by the water. He doesn't have real freedom. I'm going to help him out. So I take the fish out of the water, throw him on the land. There you go, buddy. Now you're truly free. What's going to happen to that fish? It'll die because while the water constrains the fish, it gives it the right kind of restrictions. <laughs> so it is with the commands of Christ. They're liberating because they're for our own good so we could be who we're meant to be. Thanks to Christ's work and empowering and the indwelling spirit. And friend, when you have a good root, so you're producing good fruit naturally, obeying Christ will actually be a delight. 
and not a duty. You'll obey because you see his commands are wonderful. And you'll be motivated by love for Jesus. It will be your joy to love him this way. And not because you have to, because you want to. Let's illustrate it like this. And I've used this illustration before um, because illustrations are hard. So, um, <laughs> And I, I stole this one. <laughs> so, This is from uh, John Piper. Then consider the analogy of a wedding anniversary, okay? Suppose I bring home a dozen long-stemmed roses for my wife, okay? And instead of walking through the door, I ring the doorbell. She opens the door. I give her the roses. And after she gives me a hug and thanks me, she says, why did you? And I hold up my hand, matter-of-factly, and I say, no need to thank me. It is my duty. And I will take you to dinner because that's what I'm supposed to do. What happens, okay, after she throws a flip-flop in my face? What happens? Is not an exercise of duty a noble thing? Do we not honor those who dutifully serve? <laughs> not if there's no heart in it. <laughs> Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. If I'm not moved by a spontaneous affection for her as a person, the roses do not honor her, they belittle her. Now imagine the same picture. It's our anniversary. I ring the doorbell. I hand her roses. She hugs me and thanks me and says, why did you? And this time I say, I couldn't help myself. I love you and my thinking about you drove me to want to do something for you. In fact, to make my day, I'd really enjoy taking you out tonight. Which one honors my wife? Duty or delight? So it is with God. Why do I obey Christ? Because I see the incredible truth of the gospel that he saved me, me, Though I didn't deserve an ounce of his grace and mercy, I see his beauty, the beauty of his gospel. I see my affections transformed. I see that I do not need anything but him. I see that my approval before him is not even contingent on my performance. And I want to obey because obedience means I get more of him. And I get to strive by the power of the indwelling spirit to be what I was created for. Thus, obedience is my delight even if I fail frequently, which I do. See, Jesus doesn't want our mindless, joyless, robotic obedience from a heart not set on him. Anyone can do that. You realize this? Anyone can do that. Even the Pharisees obeyed God, and Jesus rebuked them for it because it was from a heart far from him. True obedience, like the fruit from the tree, must come from the inner person who loves Jesus, who has tasted his grace, who has seen that they are a great sinner. And he's a great savior. And out of an overflow of gratitude and delight, they strive to obey their king, even as imperfectly as it might be. And what is someone who not only hears Jesus, but does what Jesus says like? Doesn't he tell us? He or she is like a man doing the hard work of building a foundation for his house. Rather than taking the easy way and building his house on dirt with no foundation, and thus, when the storm comes, he persisted. And this short parable is about acting on what one knows and hears from Jesus. And it is asking, how do I build? Again, it's self-reflection. One is easy, one is hard. One takes time, one is quick, but one can withstand the storm, one cannot. Think again about the foundation of a house. How important is a foundation? You guys all know, right? Pretty stinking important, right? I read this one time in a home guide online about foundations. It said, without the right foundation, a house cannot last. 
New homeowners often focus on the surface of things when building a home and may not be aware of the importance of the home's foundation. The structural integrity of a home requires a foundation built to last. And you know this. If you have a good foundation, which is what a person does with the claims and teachings of Jesus, when things get hard and judgment comes, you'll be able to stand. But if you have a bad foundation, a little storm comes and your house will come tumbling down. Now, both these pictures, a tree and a foundation, speak of longevity, don't they? See, someone, someone can have a nice facade. You could build a palatial mansion. You could staple apples to a tree. But unless you have a firm foundation and a good root, eventually it will all come tumbling down. Short-term fixes are easy. Skipping the foundation is quick. And we just really want to get to building our nice-looking house. But what happens when there's an earthquake or a hurricane? What is easier to actually do? Build a house with or without a foundation? Tell me. What's easier? With or without? Without. I read of someone who was, it's, e- it's easier to build without a foundation. I read of someone who was building a patio, and they said 24 of the 27 hours spent building the patio were spent on the foundation. Only the last three hours were spent on a visible portion of the patio. Why? They wanted it to last. And it couldn't last without a firm foundation, even though the work was harder and more tedious. Friend, listen to me. There are no spiritual fixes. There is no easy path to growth in the Lord. The path of obedience is like getting down and digging deep and laying a foundation. There are no cheat codes. There's no skipping steps, no cutting in line. There are no shortcuts. Following Jesus is a lifelong work that is not at all flashy. It's ordinary. Do you know this? Ordinary long-term persistence, obedience through ordinary means of grace like reading the Word hearing the word preached and taught, singing the word, gathering the local church, prayer, taking the Lord's Supper, fellowship, accountability. Those are the ways God has given us to grow in Christ. Those are getting in the dirt and digging, as it were, and laying a foundation for our whole lives. And you do it over and over and over, motivated and empowered by Christ and the gospel. And how can you know you're successful in this work? you know how you can know? Well, first, you remember your salvation, right? And Christ's grip on you does not hinge on whether or not you are successful. But second, you ask, am I being faithful to the word? Am I striving, even if sometimes I fail, towards faithfulness? If the answer is yes, then guess what? You're successful. Friend, don't you see that the temptation will always be towards the quick and the easy and the flashy? But that's not what Christ calls us to. You know, in Matthew 7, the people who Jesus says, I don't know you, were people who thought their salvation hinged on what they did. And they did all this big time, varsity level, flashy deeds. But that's not what we're called to. Flashy deeds got them nowhere because their life had no foundation in Jesus. In his classic book, which I would commend to you, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, one aspect of the world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain interest. 
Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there's a dreadful attrition rate. In our kind of culture, he says, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for long apprenticeship in what early generations called holiness. The antidote of the spiritual tourism, as Peterson calls it, is a long obedience in the same direction. A beholding Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and striving dutifully to obey Him as we dig in the dirt through ordinary means of grace for all of our lives. But now, friend, do you understand that the draw for the flashy and the quick and the easy and the attractive is also the great temptation of the American church? The impulse has been to run a church like one would run a business. To ask, first and foremost, what does the customer want, and then give it to them. It's to rely on human ingenuity and marketing and a model whose goal is to do what works to just get people to the Sunday event through programs and sweet music and generating a worship atmosphere to just get people to feel and respond a certain way. Because then we could be successful. And how is success measured? Well, by stuff we could see, of course. Numbers. How many did you get to attend your Sunday event? What's your budget look like? How many responded to what you did? And the quicker and most painless you could get this success, the better. But here's the thing about that. The church isn't a business. And humans aren't customers for the church. The question isn't what do people want? The question is what does God want? And command through His Word. The church is not a provider of spiritual goods and services. It's the body and bride of our Lord. What is God's will for the church? Do what he says. <laughs> what is it? Everybody's, what's the vision? What's, what's the God's will for our church? Let's pray about that. It's the same as the will for your life. Love him and do what he said. You know, if a young pastor came up to me and said, I'm trying to come up with a vision. I want to know what God's will for our church is. You know then what I'd tell him? Go to your office, get the Bible off the shelf, and read it and do it. That's God's will for the church. What does that look like? What does God, what does Jesus call us to? Ordinary obedience via what the word calls us to. Biblical membership, gathering, singing the word, praying the word, reading the word, preaching the word, taking the Lord's Supper, baptizing, baptizing converts, making disciples, loving one another, serving one another, confessing to one another, considering one another, leveraging our lives for the gospel and taking the love of Christ to the community and putting Jesus at the center of everything. And then how is success measured? Faithfulness. That really isn't flashy, is it? And isn't very quick. You know why? Because obedience is terribly inconvenient. And it's tedious. It's like digging a foundation in rock. But that's what our Lord calls us to, is it not? Our truest foundation, the foundation in which hinges all other foundations, is Jesus Christ and his life and his death in our place and his resurrection and his ascension. Everything we said today hinges on him. And everything he calls us to rests in the fact of our identification and attachment to him. Without him as our foundation, no deed is worth the cost. Any building we do has to be informed by our already having Christ's foundation. Otherwise, our houses will fall and the ruin will be great. 
Now, can I ask you, do you have him as your foundation? Do you have him as your root? Well, you should be able to tell by the fruit that you've produced over a long period of time. What's that reveal to you? If you don't have Jesus as foundation and root, today is the day of salvation. What are you waiting for? Nothing we've talked about today is within your reach if you do not first see your need for salvation and turn to Christ. To hear him, for he is speaking to you, and then to come to him so that you could be given new life, be given a new root, to have your bad fruit from your bad tree uprooted and replaced with his gracious love. And to you who have Jesus' foundation, can I ask, do you call him Lord, Lord? If you do, what does that look like in your life? Do you bear good fruit or bad fruit? Those are the only choices, aren't they? Do you build on the sand or are you seeing Jesus' beauty tapping into his ordinary means of grace that he provides to grow in him? Do you obey even as imperfectly as that might be? Most of all, do you see his beauty? Have you beheld his glory? Have you seen that he is so merciful and gracious that even if you haven't been walking in obedience, that he loves you anyway? And doesn't that propel you to want to obey? Lig Duncan preached this text, and he closed his sermon on his text like this. He said, the question of life is not whether we have good deeds, deeds good enough to be the foundation. The answer is no. That's not the great question of life. The great question of life is, are we trusting in the only one whose life is sufficient for our salvation, whose life and death provide our foundation, whose resurrection offers newness of life? If we're trusting in that foundation, then the only question we ask about our deeds is, do our deeds evidence that we are truly trusting in him? That's the biggest question we all must answer today. And the solution is what the solution always is. No matter who you are or what your status before God is, It's this, behold the glory of Christ. When you truly behold him, truly see him for who he is, see what he's done to get to a rebel like you and a rebel like me, then your heart will be stirred and you'll desire him and your good fruit will come forth and your foundation will be laid strong. It will be your joy to obey such a glorious king.